welcome to the Progressing Lives Everywhere podcast, brought to you by Amoria Bond. In each episode, Amoria Bond will interview a prominent leader from across their specialist STEM sectors to discuss their personal experiences of progression and share invaluable insights and inspiring anecdotes of what progression means to them. This is Progressing Lives Everywhere. Hello, I'm Natasha Crump. I'm an advisor to the Amoria Bond Board on Strategic Programmes, Global Diversity and Inclusion Lead, and co-founder of the company's Internal SM Programme, a network for female employees dedicated to attracting, retaining, and progressing more women in the business. On today's episode of the Amoria Bond Progressing Lives Everywhere podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by Svenja Brandenburg, Director of Talent Acquisition for Europe, Middle East, Africa, and India at Sherwin-Williams an American Fortune 500 company in the paint and coating manufacturing industry, and the largest coating company in the world. Born and educated in Germany, Svenja initially pursued a career in journalism, but having quickly realised it wasn't for her, in 1999 she joined executive search consultancy Howard Sabler as PA to a partner. Over the following eight years, she worked her way through the ranks, whilst also studying for an MSc at Manchester Metropolitan University. Progressing to office manager and then researcher was where she found her true calling. And she went on to work for two more executive search firms in a similar capacity, before eventually making the move from researcher to recruiter at SPX Corporation, a US headquartered multinational industrial manufacturing and engineering business, where she progressed again to talent sourcing business partner. Before joining Sherwin-Williams in 2018, Svenja worked for Boeing as their global talent sourcing lead, where she set up their strategic recruitment function out of Manchester from scratch. Not one to shy away from a challenge, Svenja built Sherwin-Williams' in-house recruitment team, covering Europe, Middle East and Africa, smashing her targets and getting promoted to director in the process. Svenja, welcome to Progressing Lives Everywhere. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Very welcome. So from PA to Talent Acquisition Director, yours is quite a remarkable and motivating progression story, Svenja. I'm keen to get under the bonnet of how you've achieved that and the lessons you've learned along the way. But before we do, I'd love to know what progression means to you personally and who has inspired your own progression? Yeah, sure. So progression is an interesting one. So I was quite a late starter career-wise. I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. As you mentioned, I planned to go into journalism. And then through fatuous coincidence, I ended up in recruitment and just found my way and worked really hard, was very lucky with great managers and great leaders, and also with a voracious appetite to learn about research, about headhunting. And really in terms of who has really inspired me career-wise, probably two people worth mentioning. First, a VPHR for EMEA at my first company where I went in-house. Very inspirational lady, very demanding, um, very high standards, really fast-paced, really good mentor to have. And very early on, she made it very clear that it is okay to not know, which at the time I felt quite interesting because I thought as a VP, you need to know everything. So I found that quite insightful and really I've not forgotten that about, you know, that comment to this day. And it is okay 
to not know. So as you build your career, it's absolutely fine to ask questions, to say you don't know and work out who does know and then reach out to that person. So that's certainly one element that has really stayed with me throughout my entire career. But also another individual I should probably give, give a lot of credit to is my mentor at Boeing, with whom I'm still in touch with. She really equipped me with the confidence of that you can do it and that really, yes, you have to work hard, you have to be committed, you have to be passionate, you have to be interested in what you do, but also equipping me with the practical tools of how to navigate in a complex matrix, which most U.S. corporates are. So that's been very, very helpful. And she's an amazing person. And so I think it's been a combination of working hard, being lucky, but also having, you know, a growth mindset and really willing to learn and continue to willing to learn. So those are probably a couple of elements that have helped me throughout. That's really interesting. So immediately you've talked about mentors in your career and the impact and influence they've had in terms of your own progression. Mentoring is something that comes up a lot on the Progressing Lives Everywhere podcast when we're talking to various people. And I'm interested to know what are the characteristics that make a great mentor? That's a really good question. So first of all, I think you have to make sure you have a good mentor. So the mentor should be a person that will help you with your shortcomings, you know, anything, an element that you want to develop in personally. So that mentor should have, that should be their strength. So they can share that ability and really can coach you on, you know, becoming better at that particular subject. Also, I think a mentor has to also have a growth mindset. I think they have to be naturally curious and really committed as well. For me, mentoring is quite serious. I also mentor somebody currently, and I take that very serious. And having had a mentor that took it very serious, I think you can really see the benefit. It should be something that I think should benefit both sides. You know, so that's where the growth mindset of the mentor comes in. But I think it's a true commitment, you know, identify somebody that has got the skills that you want to develop further in and also really enjoy it. Fun is always a really important part of that mentoring relationship, for sure. I just want to pick up on something a little bit more that you pulled out there. So you talked about learning from one of your mentors that it's okay not to know everything and that you've taken that advice through your career. I'm really interested by that. It's something I think a lot of people listening will, will identify with. How liberating was it for you to realise or to be told or even given permission, actually, that you don't have to have all the answers. And how important is it, actually, as someone who works with talent, that leaders show that kind of vulnerability? How important is that vulnerability in terms of creating an open and honest culture across teams and organisations? Yeah, so for me, I think that particular moment was a lollipop moment. It wasn't planned. It was just mentioned in a conversation. And I thought, wow, you know, that's amazing. And I think it equipped me with the confidence of, I don't need to know everything. But what also, by the same token, is is making sure, you know, to, to not rest on your laurels, to find out, you know, if you, if you want to find out about something, be it something, you know, whether it's a job description or, you know, whatever it may be, it's, you know, I, I found it amazing that somebody at that level of seniority has got that humbleness. This is how I approach my team also, that it's okay for them not to know as long as they're willing to find out. And also, you know, if they don't know who may be able to answer the question, to have that confidence to to say, hey, can you help me identify? So I think being humble and being 
honest is definitely, you know, really, really important, especially at that level. Not many people are like that. I think I've been generally lucky with very good leaders, strong leaders, a lot of them female, actually, most of them female, but also just having a level of humility at the very top to say, hey, it's okay. Nobody knows everything. And that kind of makes, you know, the world interesting, really. It makes it okay as well to keep learning, right? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. I've known you for a number of years now, Svenja. And what strikes me is that over that time, my perception is that you've become more ambitious, not less so. What is it that drives you? Where does your kind of ever-growing ambition come from? That's a very good question. So I think it's a combination of that voracious appetite for learning generally. But when I started my career, I was never overly ambitious. I was very ambitious in having amazing holidays, traveling, getting to see the world, reading books and so forth. So my ambitions were in a different part of my life. And I I started to get really interested in, in driving my career forward in a more, you know, progressive manner after I became a mother. So that was a quite an interesting uh, element. So I would probably say once I had my child in 2010, that was when I really, really went for it. That's really interesting because actually, you know, what you're saying there goes against the kind of widespread or general presumption or dare I say misconception that women with children or even parents generally, um, at least for a period, are less ambitious than before they had children. It's something... I'm really identify with as you're talking because I've experienced the same thing. Absolutely. My ambition has grown since becoming a parent. And I see that and recognize that with quite a lot of, of my colleagues and peers. Why do you think it is? What do you think is behind that, Svenja? Why, why do you think parenting can actually act as a kind of accelerator or ignite that ambition? Probably a couple of things, I would say, perhaps one being being, a you know, becoming a mother made me comfortable with responsibility. You know, before you have children, the world's your oyster. As long as your rent's paid, there's not really much that you have. I mean, obviously, keeping healthy and so forth, looking after your family and friends. But becoming a mother, I think, made me really comfortable with having responsibility and really nurturing that responsibility and, and becoming really comfortable with it from a career point of view. And I think the other part is probably also motherhood has given me some some purpose as well. And I'm sure the risk of sounding slightly lofty here, but I think you realize that, hey, you know, if you do something with a purpose, you know, what Simon Sinek calls the why, I think becoming a mother probably illuminated that and, and gave me that that epiphany that, hey, you know, it, it, it's a good thing. It's actually a good thing to be a mother and to to, to be ambitious I'm very lucky, I have to say. I've got a partner who is very supportive. We have slightly reversed roles. So I'm very lucky in that regard. I travel a lot. You know, I'm always on the go. I work long hours, et cetera. But I don't think my son suffers. I'd like to think I'm a reasonably good role model, that it's okay to work hard and to be committed and to do a good job. If you, I mean, this is what I teach him. You know, if you do a job, do it right. So it's a combination of all of those things. It's a really interesting area. And as you've been talking, it just struck me that actually as somebody who works in talent acquisition, you talked about having a really supportive partner. And obviously over the years, even since we've had children ourselves, I think it's fair to say that workplaces are, not all workplaces, but workplaces are starting to to kind of catch up with the idea that parenting isn't just 
a mother's responsibility, it's starting to be more balanced between parents. From a talent acquisition perspective, how important is it that companies accommodate working parents to, I'm thinking kind of the the war for talent, how important is it for companies to be aware of the talent amongst working parents, male and female? I mean, it's absolutely crucial. And, And to your point, it does not necessarily have to be the mother. But I think companies nowadays have got to realize that the world has changed. The dynamics have changed. You know, we we do require a lot more flexibility, especially being parents. So if you have a company that has got a good inclusion and diversity program and a true commitment to, to to the issue, you absolutely widen your talent pool. I mean, you know, I can give you a quick example. I've been working with a project group I lead on a smart working policy, which we're in the process of rolling out across EMEA, which really focuses on providing flexi working, um, job share, offering part time. That way, if you are able to offer this and really buy into it, your talent pool widens significantly. So you can't capture people that might be super talented, but might have had restrictions of yes you know having to look after children after parents whatever it may be it's absolutely crucial that that companies and and more and more so as as we we continue to go on because there is a war for talent out there Mm. to really embrace that mindset to be truly inclusive be diverse and really enable that through formal policies but also through in my opinion that the cultural change the mindset change the education to the business itself is as important as as it is writing policies, really. So how have you gone about in your role as Director of Talent Acquisition? How have you gone about creating that cultural change or embedding that cultural change? So it's not a one-man band, I have to say. The company I work for is very amazing that we have a lot of good people at the top. It's a very strong leadership team. And they nurture, they fully support what we're trying to do. And it's my boss who heads up HR in the region. She's effectively the the, the VP of the region. She's really buying into that. And she is the proactive leader at the executive leadership level to really drive that. But it's, it's a marathon, not a sprint. I mean, we are still... No, I wouldn't say beginning stages, but it's it's taking a long time and you have to have the buy-in from everybody, which covering 28 countries can be challenging in, in various countries where perhaps inclusion and diversity or, you know, flexi-working flexi is not necessarily a thing. So it's it's educating the workforce, educating the managers, having that support from the leadership without it, you absolutely wouldn't go anywhere but it's it's starting to really chip away. And really, I, I feel it, yeah, our responsibility in talent acquisition is to really be proactive and question hiring managers and really be that business partner, question the status quo and really push back as well if there are comments that may or may not necessarily be appropriate to just not tolerate them and really address them head on. That's really interesting. I'm just wondering before we move on, what would you say is the most effective thing a company or individual out there listening to this wanting to do something about improving diversity and inclusion in their own business to help them attract a more diverse better talent pool what would be the key thing the most effective thing you'd say that to start off by doing I think it's actually really the the education piece at the beginning really get your head around what does inclusion and diversity actually mean Obviously, there's been a lot in the media recently with Black Lives Matters, the George Floyd incident, et cetera, from a race point of view. Gender has been an issue for, for many years. 
But when you actually look at it, how does that impact recruitment? How does that impact talent? It's getting your head around what does inclusion and diversity actually mean? It's really start baby steps, doing the education piece. We do that through workshops that I deliver with, you know, with the VP of, of inclusion and diversity in Cleveland through the LND network that we have. So it's really doing small steps and getting people and again, allowing people to say, hey, I don't know. You know, I generally don't know the difference between equity and equality and that that is OK to give the business, the confidence to say, hey, I actually have got to learn. So equip them with not theories and, you know, masses of blogs or podcasts or what have you, but to just really stick to the basics and, and plant that seed of what it is and, and why it matters. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And again, you're referring back to that early lesson around it's okay not to know and it's okay to ask questions. So it's coming through all the time. Whoever that VP, HRVP was, she's certainly stuck in your head with that one. (laughs) She hasn't been. (laughs) You've mentioned a few times, actually, the importance of learning and talked about being an avid learner, studying through an MSc whilst working part-time. I know that you recently also completed a course at University of Cambridge on high-impact leadership, and I've done a little bit of LinkedIn snooping, and it looks like you're constantly acquiring new skills, certifications, qualifications. Why is it so important to you to keep learning and upskilling? Well, that's that's a good, that's quite a loaded question, Natasha. So... <laughs> Absolutely, yep. <laughs> Well, I just like to learn and and not just business, but I'm just a naturally curious person, be it trying new recipes or listening to to podcasts. I mean, I really got into the whole gender ideology topic, which had you mentioned this three, four months ago, I, I would have probably never paid too much attention beyond, you know, having to know this and having to learn about it for you know for, for the for the inclusion and, and diversity piece I, I do at work but I, I just think learning if you stop learning your life is over I think this is what makes life interesting it, it keeps me satisfied you know it, it's not even a case of knowledge is power it's just knowledge is beautiful and you can learn and you never know what you actually end up learning that might come in quite useful at some point I don't specialize in 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 business learning you know I read a lot very different from crime to to fiction to non-fiction autobiographies biographies so it's a very eclectic mix of stuff I like to 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 learn to learn about so even holidays planning those learning about destinations what to do there so just shifting focus a bit now Svenja Having worked in the industry for most of your career, how have you seen talent acquisition change over time? And what are the key trends that you've noticed emerging? Wow. So when I started, it was the last millennium, a long time ago, and it literally was very much a post and praying scenario. So roles were advertised, mostly in newspapers. It was very little, you know, there was hat hunting, but it was the black book. It was very network oriented, who you knew. So that has really shifted from people applying to jobs to talent acquisition, really having to be sit in the driving seat and proactively source. So that has that could be because of countries having very low unemployment rates, scarcity of skills. I mean, it could be a combination. But even though we have a lot of technology at hand now, CRM systems, ATSs, 
AI, interview bots, you know, all the fancy technology that exists. I still think, you know, providing the human element, providing an excellent candidate experience to candidates, that part has not changed at all. I think recruitment itself has really developed, but I think that part has stayed the same and should stay the same if you want to be sure that you, A, treat candidates with respect, but also attract the right talents. It's almost as if we've planted that. What you're saying is obviously music to a recruitment company's ears. (laughs) As a previous recruiter yourself, you have a pretty positive and inclusive approach to working with external recruitment partners, which isn't always the case. What would you say are the key ingredients for successful partnership between internal recruitment teams and external recruiters in your experience? So genuinely, I think it needs to be a partnership. When we work with external providers, I see them truly as an extension of our own team. I build good relationships with, I know, I trust them implicitly. Really, for me, that the main part is is that they get to know our business too. So that would mean, you know, when we instruct a consultancy to support us with a search for them to have direct access to the hiring manager at the briefing stage, where possible, come and actually see the facilities It's in our interest to have a good relationship with a third-party provider. If we expect them to do a good quality job and and provide us good talent, they need to see what the culture is like, at least culture from a, what does the building look like? Is it, what are the people like face-to-face? So really equip and support that that, that we may work with, with the ability to do as good a job as we would be doing. Svenja, you, you talked there about the importance of access to hiring managers. That's not always the case. There are a lot of talent acquisition teams out there who can be quite reluctant to give external recruitment partners that kind of access to the hiring teams. What are the benefits that you see in talent acquisition teams facilitating or enabling um, external recruitment partners to have that kind of level of access and understanding of your business? So at the briefing stage, which in my opinion, and this is the first thing when I do training, the briefing stage is the most important stage in the recruitment process. If you don't get that right, you're not going to be able to recruit talent or you know get the right talent for what is required. For enabling a third party supplier to an agency or consultancy to have access to the hiring manager at that briefing stage is for them to be able to hear the requirements from the horse's mouth. There is no third potential third-party interpretation or Chinese whispers. I think that's really important that, that whoever will be delivering the shortlist has got access to all the information they need, the ability to ask questions. They may think of the, you know questions that a recruiter might not necessarily think of because they may know the business. For them, it's because they work there, they know, they know it. But for, you know, somebody who is, who doesn't work in the organization, but with the organization, for me, it's important that they have the ability to really get the role under their skin to be able to do a good job. So, and I, I absolutely know where you're coming from in term. I, I don't understand why, why you wouldn't do that, because as I said, for me, it's important that the hiring manager gets the best person. And for that, you have to do the legwork and really understand what the role is about, what the requirements are. So in my opinion... Absolutely. You you have to have the, the individual participate in the briefing call. Absolutely. The human element of recruitment remains really, really important, really vital. I'm just going back to something you mentioned before. You talked about you talked about the importance of people, of that human kind of 
element of recruitment in terms of the candidate experience. And whilst I absolutely recognise that and totally agree with you, there are also tools and technologies that have developed or kind of seem to be living in a world of constant emergence of new recruitment technologies, new platforms. And many of them can actually really help us both as recruiters and I'm sure for yourself as talent in talent acquisition teams. So for example, at Moria Bond, we adopted a video platform called Hinterview, which has really enhanced our services, our ability to build and maintain relationships around the world with clients and candidates and widening our global kind of talent network through that virtual face-to-face value-add kind of platform. From your experience on the other side, you know, from a talent acquisition perspective, what are the best technologies in your opinion, the things that have really helped you and your teams? And are there any things that you think technology-wise are on the horizon that talent acquisition teams should be looking out for? Yeah, absolutely. So firstly, I think it's important that we embrace technology. And, and to your point, not, you know, without neglecting the human element, but I think if you work smarter rather than harder, it's going to be in everybody's interest to do that. And I think with the changing world, especially with Zoom interviewing, with having to do a lot of our job virtually nowadays, you have to have the appropriate technology in place to do your job properly. So that's one thing. So in terms of particular tools, so I personally think a CRM system is absolutely vital. A lot of companies only have an ATS, an applicant tracking system, which is very 90s and really caters for the post and pray. Customer, you know, a CRM system, in my opinion, is important to a pipeline effectively, and keep in touch with with individuals being able to retrieve the the, the data that you had you know with heart, through hard labor gathered um so that's one thing and then another thing i would probably say going into the in the ind arena inclusion and diversity is tools that can help you at least significantly reduce bias for example in job descriptions we all know that job descriptions can be very biased so there are various tools some of them free out there on the internet where you can copy job descriptions into the tool, and it will tell you, it will make suggestions of words, adjectives, whatever they may be, that are biased and give you suggestions as to what you ought to change or whether a job, it analyzes whether a job description has a bias towards female uh, gender or male gender. Another excellent tool is Textio. It's something, you know, I'm looking into together with the US as an option, not sure, you know, if, if we will get this tool or not, but that's a very, very good tool. Again, along the lines of helping recruiters reduce bias, help recruiters write much better job descriptions. What you find in house, and I'm sure you know this, a lot of the time adverts are just regurgitated job descriptions. So, and that kind of, again, leads us to another topic as well. I think employee value proposition and employee branding is absolutely vitally important also. So using tools to really enhance the employee value proposition to candidates and making sure that you represent your business in the best possible way, especially when you have a company that nobody knows, Sherwin-Williams, nobody has heard about us here in the region. It's, It's a very famous brand in the US here, nobody knows about it. So we have to go the extra mile. I mean, we own Ron Seal, so that's a little plug here, and Valspar. So those are two brands that are famous, but nobody's heard of Sherwin-Williams. So it's it's using tools, using technology that can help us drive 
employer branding, you know, the social media sphere. I mean, there's so many cool things that we can do nowadays, very cost effectively. So for me, it's definitely embracing technology, just finding that balance between providing that good candidate experience, still giving it that personal touch, but also bearing in mind that we need help from technology to be able to effectively evaluate applications, CVs, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's keeping that balance and, and, and always keep an eye out on what else is out there. It's really interesting that you mentioned employer value proposition. It's something I'm really keen to to cover with you a bit more. What are the key areas from your experience that you think companies should be considering and including in their employer value propositions to make them stand out in the war for talent? What, what have you seen working well? So I think it's being very honest with applicants. What you find certainly in the corporate space is... A lot of companies spend invest a lot of money in very fancy websites saying very nice things. But then when you actually get to know the company better, be it through working or working with them, you very quickly realize it's it's a lot of PR work rather than actual what the company does. So that was certainly something I very much noticed joining Sherwin-Williams. They really put focus on talent. They put focus on people. Now, that is actually on the website very well portrayed how we care about talent, but it's actually something that they really do well. And that was evident throughout the pandemic, how we dealt with the employee population, how the employees were looked after. I think it's really making sure that candidates A, know about you and that they get a true feeling for what it's like to work for this company. What is this company all about versus just having you know, fancy words on a website, you know, without much substance, really, or little substance, rather. So just around that, where do you think accountability for employer value proposition should sit within an organization? That's a good question. So I personally think, well, it it sits in HR, but, and I, you know, my team can vouch for that. I feel we, we, we have a lot of accountability and responsibility in talent acquisition. We are in the driving seat to really own that process. And that is often through collaboration, through the marketing teams, through, you know, their internal communications, external comms and so forth. But I think it's really important that TA works very closely. I mean, I can give you an example. We wanted to really communicate to candidates what benefits we give. So we worked with our Compenbenz team to get benefits for every site. So we can actually share that because, you know, showing this really nice benefits. So this is something that we should share with the candidates. We might not post that on the adverts, but when you are, you know, getting an offer, we can provide you with a breakdown with full details of everything that that we offer and above and beyond what, what you would expect from a regular company, as it were, and also be really, you know, in terms of of driving that that talent piece is also working, and this is what we do very closely, I work very closely with my head of talent development, well, now director of talent development, who we work very closely to make sure that we actually use internal talent pools where possible as well. We're sometimes limited, obviously, geographically with the different countries, language limitations and so forth, but it's really taking employee value proposition very seriously. And I do think that TA can play a big part in that and also be proactive making recommendations to leadership. I mean, we sit at 
the helm, you know, speaking to candidates day in, day out, we find out about what happens in other companies and, and, and taking that on board and, hey, you know, such and such and such a company does this. Is this something we should be looking at? So from a TA perspective, actually really take EVP quite serious. Thanks for that, Svenja. We're living in a time of huge change and there's significant job losses happening across a number of sectors. There are a lot of people out there who are trying to find new work in new industries, as well as new entrants to the workforce coming out of schools and universities, all of whom are facing the dilemma of not having enough relevant experience to get a job, but not being able to get the experience they need because they can't get the job. What is your advice to those applicants to help them break that cycle? And also, what is your advice to companies who insist on certain levels of industry experience or certain degrees, certain certain criteria? Let me start with the second question first. I think a company, generally, the culture should reflect that times are changing. We've moved on from the requirement. I question why we have even mentioned degrees on job descriptions, right? So I think companies should be open and have a bit more of an open mindset as to what a good candidate looks like. It's really focusing on the skills and the competencies rather than the spot on 100% experience from past, you know, from past jobs. So for a new starter, I think as much as I talk about the candidate, us providing excellent candidate experience, I think the advice I would give somebody looking for a job, be it a graduate or somebody who is looking for a new opportunity is not just firing off CVs to really spend time tailoring the CV. You know, as a recruiter, we, we scan CVs, we're trained in really picking out the salient bits in, in, a, in a resume. So is really making sure that when you apply, when you're really interested and really keen on a role, make sure that you fully read the job description and where you perhaps lack the exact skills, really provide salient and, and very relevant transferable skills, experience that, that could work in the role. Even though, you know, I'll give you an example. I mean, a lot of, of flight attendants have been laid off. And I think, it, you know, obviously it, it's a really, really challenging situation at the moment. So my advice is, hey, you know, look at what skills have you got? What skills could you give to, say, a customer services role? You know, because that's what the flight attendant is all about is, is a safety, of course, but also providing a really good customer service. So and really let that shine through in a CV, giving specific examples you know, and really focusing on value add as well. What else can I bring to the role that somebody with the background that I have may add to the role you're looking for to really sell yourself in a humble manner, but also really put time and effort into your CV. I mean, this is the challenge we have with the quick applies with ATSs and CRMs. But if you take your job search seriously, that would be something I would really, you know, recommend people do. But also when you have got the job is, is work hard, be committed, go the extra mile, have that growth mindset and, and embrace learning opportunities. I mean, progression is not necessarily just promotion. And I think this is really, really important. You know, doing a horizontal step is equally rewarding and, and precious as, as just moving up the ranks. And just be humble and, and patient. And, and really, for me, the overarching thing is always integrity. Be honest do what's right when nobody's watching. People say it's a full-time job to look for a full-time job. And I actually really think that's true. <laughs> so, you know, it's it's uh, putting the, the same effort into applying for a role and excelling in a role than it is 
from the other side when your recruiter evaluates your experience. That's a really useful perspective, Sonia. Thank you for that. You've successfully built a number of high-performing functions and teams from scratch. So what's the secret of your success in developing and progressing your teams? I think, first of all, I'm incredibly results-driven. I always look forward. I never stop. But equally, I'm also very methodical in in really putting a lot of effort into what does a good TA function look like. And as I mentioned earlier, I was very lucky that I have had excellent bosses that were demanding in, in, in a good way, have really set high standards, high expectations, you know, first time right, grammar correctly in adverts and so forth. So really setting that high performance and quality ethos into the DNA of the function, but also really being very clear with expectations. What is what is expected from us? I mean, when you set something up from scratch, on one hand, it's a great, you have a, you know, a blank sheet, basically, within the limitations of the, the environment you operate in. So it's really identifying what, what works in this company. So at Boeing, that was very different to, to what it was at Sherwin. So it's really, again, understanding the business, understanding how the business works, what the culture is like, be very clear about what you expect the team to achieve, be very clear with the business about what we can deliver. I firmly believe in under-promising and over-delivering is to really make sure that you, that you do a good job, be clear about expectations and really never lose that focus on quality. Really helpful. Thank you. Great insights there. Just thinking about all the teams that you've worked with through the past, people perhaps you've mentored, people you've hired and seen progress through various organizations. What's the proudest moment looking back where you've thought, wow, I've really made a difference there with that person or that team? That's a nice question. And to be honest, probably the reason why I'm in recruitment, because that happens a lot of times, right? So in terms of proudest moment, it's when you really think outside of the box, where you enable a move, be it internally or externally, with an external hire, it's that cross-fertilization, thinking outside of the box, using somebody's existing skills. I drove that with a colleague that I, through coincidence, met in the kitchen in Poland, <laughs> who was telling me about her, you know, her ambitions, and she wanted to go into HR, and she spoke five languages absolutely fluently. And I was working at a, in a really random role at the time for a global privacy manager role. And she came from IT. She said, well, I know nothing about data privacy and, and, and so forth. I said, well, but, you, you know, I kind of explained to her why I thought she would be actually quite good for this role. She wanted to travel. She wanted to use her languages. And she got the role. She absolutely excelling in it. And I think those are the eureka moments where you think, this is really nice to have enabled somebody to, to get a really good job, something that they wanted to do that had they applied for the role may have not necessarily been a good match because if you don't know the person, or don't know enough about the person. So I had to do quite a bit of influencing at the, at the business side. But to be fair, they trusted me and they did a bit of digging and found, hey, she's actually a great fit. So she's still in the role. She's still very happy. So it's, yeah, it's those moments where you think, think outside of the box can be a good thing. Absolutely. Definitely. It's seeing the potential, isn't it? Not necessarily the experience in its traditional form. Svenja, it's been absolutely fascinating speaking to you today. Before we draw to a close, I'd just like to know, what's the golden nugget that you'd like to end on today? That key piece of advice or insight that you think is absolutely crucial for someone listening who is wanting to progress a goal or ambition or area of their own life? 
I think it's it's what I mentioned previously is work hard, go the extra mile, but also bring a lot of passion. Make sure that what you do, you do with your heart being in it because that makes the job just that much more rewarding. Fantastic. Svenja, genuinely, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for joining me on the Amoria Bond Progressing Lives Everywhere podcast today. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks, Natasha. Thank you for listening to Progressing Lives Everywhere, brought to you by Amoria Bond. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please be sure to subscribe, like and leave a review. Every time you do, it helps others find the podcast. For more information on Amoria Bond's specialist services and to access the podcast show notes, head over to amoriabond.com. Join us next time as we continue to progress lives everywhere.